team and, and pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our lives and uh, apply his truth to our hearts and minds today. And if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 10. I mentioned just a moment ago, so if you'll uh, either open back up to John 10 uh, or head that way, that is where we're going to be. And I mentioned our theme this morning is, is uh, it's around confronting unbelief. And so as a kid growing up, a child of the 80s for the most part, uh, there was a show called Ripley's Believe It or Not that used to come on TV. And, and it was a, there was actually an earlier show, like in the late 40s and the 50s, about this guy who had all these artifacts and these pictures. And they're basically just putting these things in front of you that, like, there's no way. Or, like, like, like really, it's like this whole questioning of belief. And, and uh, as you're watching that, you know, maybe uh, you kind of have that skeptical side. And it's like, really? Like, an albino giraffe? Seriously? Like they, and even if you, if, if, I think it's Gatlinburg, they have a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. And they have these different places. And it's just out there, all these things to make you just kind of like amaze you and woo you and like, wow, do you really believe this? And, um, and I, I share that just because in our text today, uh, Jesus is going to equip us as the church. And, and I, I think that's, that's important that as we gather, we are gathering for the spirit of God to equip us with the word of God. And, and, and as we walk through the text, uh, the, the Lord is going to equip us with, with the world we live in to communicate who he is to uh, a very broken, a very broken world. And my, my hunch is that you have probably all had conversations with folks, maybe where you live, work and play. If you share your faith that it's possible that you may uh, cross paths with, with a skeptic or, or someone is like questioning or, or like seriously, or, or who is Jesus? Tell me more about this Jesus. And so I love that through the word this morning, uh, God is going to equip us through the word. And then I also love that it, it could be that you're here or maybe listening in today and, and maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you could be a seeker uh, or maybe you are, maybe there's some doubts that you have. And so you're kind of, uh, you're pursuing to learn more. And, and, and I'm confident that God will use his word today to be a great encouragement to you as you seek the truth. Because as we seek the truth, God will no doubt reveal himself and who he is. And then he's come to give life and life to the full. And so this morning, we are going to walk through the word. And our main idea of the word this morning is that Christ exposes unbelief and invites people to believe in him for eternal life. He's going to expose unbelief. And, and in this text, it's just good to kind of get our bearings in that. Uh, this is where we're reading. This is going to be the last time Jesus is in Jerusalem before a few months from now, he's going to return for Passover. And the next time that he's going to come to Jerusalem, he is coming as the conquering King. And so this is his last time there in Jerusalem. And, and as we were walking through John 10 and we made it up to verse 21, we left off at verse 21. We're picking up at verse 22 today. There's actually about a two month gap that takes place between verse 21 and verse 22. That verse 21 and leading up through that was Jesus was celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And, and now as we pick up in verse 22, we'll see that he's at the Feast of Dedication. That was the fall. We're now in the winter of time. And so I want us to see, first of all, how 
Christ is confronted with the unbelieving world. And again, I think the word is the word is alive. The word is powerful. But I do believe in a unique way in the unique time that we are living in is that we can relate in a lot of ways to the scene that's taking place in the word. And so Christ is going to be confronted by the unbelieving world. Verse 22 of John 10, the Bible says that at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So again, just context wise, Christ earlier up through verse 21 was in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the three feasts that God through the Old Testament commanded his people to make that journey to Jerusalem to celebrate. And then now we see the Feast of Dedication. This is actually the only time in the Bible that this feast is mentioned. And the Feast of Dedication is also known as uh, a feast or, or celebration that we're probably all familiar with or at least heard of. It means Hanukkah. Rededication is the Hebrew word for Hanukkah. And so this celebration began at the close of the old, after the close of the Old Testament and before the New Testament began. And so just kind of a little bit of that, of that history there is uh, Jerusalem had been taken over by a wicked Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was wicked and he came in and he, he, he kind of uh, just took over Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. He sacrificed swine in the temple. He built a statue of the Greek god Zeus for people to worship. He was, he was a brutal, brutal ruler. I mean, some of the stories would just uh, be, be just heart-wrenching to hear what he did to men and women and children. It, it, it was a, he was a wicked, wicked man. And so uh, there was a priest there in Jerusalem named Mattathias. Mattathias had a son named Judas Maccabeus, and he and, and, and his family led a revolt of Jerusalem to take back over Jerusalem and to reclaim the temple. And they were successful. And so they purified the temple. They rededicated the temple, which is why it's called the feast of dedication, which is why it's called Hanukkah. And the whole, the way the story goes is, as they came in, they had enough oil to light one lamp for the temple as they had rededicated and God had done a miracle and the oil didn't just last for one day, but eight days. That's why we see in Jews as they celebrate Hanukkah, you'll see the menorah with the eight candles. And those represent each of those days that the oil just miraculously lasted. But the reason I say all of that is just context is that here's Jesus in Jerusalem and he's at the feast of dedication celebrating Hanukkah. And this was not commanded by God, but he's there and he's celebrating. And so it's here that he's celebrating and the Bible says it was winter. Hanukkah takes place during the winter, typically December. And so what's, what's also important for us to see is that winter is a very real season that I think some people like, but a lot of people aren't too excited about winter. Why? Because although like, I think we're all like winter, yes, come right now. Cause it's like going to be a hundred degrees again this week. Uh, but, but fall, bring on the fall. Let's just live in fall for a while. Right. But winter's coming. What happens in winter? The days get shorter. What happens? The, 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 the nights are darker. What happens is the air is colder. What happens is the ground is harder. 
And this is a spiritual metaphor of what is happening in the hearts of these Jewish religious leaders as they, as we'll see, as they encircle Jesus on this temple mount. Again, the last time that he'll be here before he comes during Passover. And so he's there. And the word there for, uh, for, for circling him is the same word that, that armies would use to circle their enemies. Look at verse 23 again. The Bible says, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It was like a porch area on the temple mount. And verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So again, the Jews gathered around him. It's the same word it's used a few times in the Bible. And, and where it's used the majority of the time, it speaks of an, of an army circling their enemy. And so they're encircling Jesus and they're coming around Jesus. And they're encircling him, not because they're curious, but because they have already made up their minds that they are against Christ as we look, they ask the question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. That word plainly means publicly. It means in front of everybody. And so what's happening here is this is a great question. This is the question. Who is Christ? And to know Christ, that he is God and he is the son of God. He's come to give life. But again, they're not, they're not honestly seeking answers in doubt. They have already made up their mind who Jesus is. This is a setup. This is a trap. Have you ever been set up or in a trap? He's in it right now. These leaders are not seeking truth. They are seeking to stop Christ. And so I, I think it's important to just kind of draw a line uh, of, of just, I think it's good for us to kind of hear this kind of line in the sand is it is one thing to have honest doubt. And it's another thing to have hardened denial as it relates to God and his word. And so doubt is doubt is doubt can be very healthy because what happens is doubt assumes that there's truth to know. And that as a doubter, as you seek to know truth, God will be faithful to reveal his truth to that heart. John 7, 17, Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And so doubt is very different, honestly seeking, honestly asking questions. And by the way, I just want to say my heart and, and the heart is that this should be a place where you can ask questions. Matter of fact, at the end of service now, and y'all may have, y'all may have picked it up, but whether it's Pastor Charlie or, or Pastor Jake or Brother Bill, as they're closing out, a lot of times they'll say, and, and some of our team will be down front in case one service is over, in case you want to come and you have a question or you want to talk like, because doubt, God can use doubt to reveal and to point others to him. And so there, the, here we see Christ is confronted by the unbelieving world, but now we'll see where Christ will confront the unbelieving world with his truth. Verse 25, and Jesus answered them, I told you, <laughs> I told you, and you didn't believe. They're like, tell us plainly, tell us plainly. Jesus is, he says, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. All along, 
the word of Christ and the works of Christ have been on display for them. So much so that they, they, can't, they can't mistake Christ as plainly communicated who he is, that he is God, he's in the flesh, he and the Father are one, that he has come, that he is the Messiah. And we see it all through the Gospel of John. If we remember what the theme of John is, the theme of John is believe. He tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, the whole reason that God used him to write this Gospel account so that they may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. The word believe is mentioned like a hundred times in the Gospel of John. And in these few verses that we're walking through, it's in there like 20 times. And so believe is this theme and that the Lord is pointing us to. And in his word, but as early as John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He goes on to say this. He says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So, so John the baptizer was born, the incarnation of Christ, God clothing himself in flesh, dwelling among us. The, the, the birth in Bethlehem took place after John the baptizer was born. So he's saying the one who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, Christ has always been. In John chapter 2, he did the miracle of turning water into wine and then made his way into Jerusalem and he clears out the temple because his temple is not a place for money changing. It's to be a house of prayer. In John 3, even Nicodemus, the, the, the most renowned uh, Jewish Pharisee leader, Nicodemus says this in John chapter 3 verse 2, he says, Rabbi to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God for one cannot do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In John chapter four, he heals a royal official son without even, even pointing in the walking in the direction of where that young boy was laying ill. And then after that, he says, come on, disciples, we got to go. And they go to, of all places, Samaria and finds a woman at the well. And this is my paraphrase. But the woman in the well basically says, we know the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he's going to make all things right. And what Jesus says to her is, I who speak to you am he. He's the Messiah. In John 5, he healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years called God his Father, called himself both the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a messianic title that Daniel gave us in the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm him. I am the Messiah. In John 6, he fed 5,000 men. Add in the women and children. We're estimating somewhere in 20,000 with what? Fed 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. <laughs> That's it. Miraculously crosses across the water and he communicates, I am the bread of life. In John 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, this, this feast that I mentioned before the Feast of Dedication, that he comes in and he cries out that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living Water In John 8, he's still at the Feast of Tabernacles. They're taking down the lamps that have given light to the feast. And then Jesus steps up and says, I am the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He goes on to tell them, 
His name is I am, which is the same personal name that God gave himself when he spoke to Moses in Exodus in the Old Testament. Like over and over, Jesus has plainly communicated that he is the Messiah. In John 9, he heals a man who was born blind. The religious leaders push him down and push him out. Jesus goes and finds him, brings him in and lifts him up. He's the good shepherd. And here he is now repeatedly communicating that he has been sent by God to do the work of the father. He says, I plainly told you, I told you, you did not believe. In verse 26 of John 10, he says, but you did not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The miracle of salvation is a glorious work of God. In salvation, we see the sovereignty of God and we see his call and his pursuit and his invitation for all of those to, to place their faith and trust in him. But we also see this human responsibility that we have to respond to God's call to salvation. And this is why this invitation is open to all. He calls and he invites. But what does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. They follow me. This is the invitation. This is the mark of the Christian life. We use that word Christian so much. We use it so much. They're Christian. They're Christian. I'm Christian. Like, and it's a powerful word. Jesus communicates even here, who is a Christian? It's the sheep who hear his voice and they follow him. And so the encouragement for us to ask ourselves is, are we listening to his voice and are we following him? Because Jesus says, that's who my sheep are. They hear my voice and they follow me to which I would just say, if you were here and you would say, I am living apart from a relationship with God. Can we can we hear the voice of the good shepherd who is inviting you into a life-giving relationship? Verse 28, but I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. His sheep, he gives eternal life. He gives it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't pay enough money. It's free. Like it'd be really weird if I came up to you this morning I said, hey, like, I have a really awesome gift from you. It's a new car. Like, anybody up for a new car? All right, I'm giving you one. But you have to pay for it. <laughs> like, that's the only catch. Like, I'm going to give it to you, but you got to pay for it. Or, like, like I'm going to give you a car, but, like, I mean, I'm going to give it to you, but I need you to come and do, like, yard work at my house for the rest of your life in order to pay this off. Or I give it to you and it's like, hey, on one condition, like, like just if I ever need anything, you call and you just, you, you just do everything for me when I ask. Like, that's not a gift. That's a lame gift. Like, you're like, never mind. I don't want the car. But what Christ is saying is like eternal life. I give it. Like, you can't work for this. You can't earn for it by grace through faith. It's a gift. It's a gift. And I love verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This is the most encouraging passage of eternal security. You will find anywhere, anywhere that Christ says you're his, you're his sheep. 
You know his voice. You follow him. He gives you eternal life. Says nothing or no one can snatch you out of his hand. And I have the like Allstate commercial ringing in my head, right? You know, you're in good hands with, anybody know it? Allstate, like, okay, like, no, like, like to be in the hand of God. And nothing can get to you except it goes through him. I love Isaiah 40, 12. The Bible says that he who was measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with his span. A span is your, the top of your pinky to the end of your thumb. And this is the hand of God that holds you secure and holds you in his grip. He says in verse 30, I and the, I and the Father are one. We're one. They're on the Temple Mount. This is kind of the final showdown before he'll be back for Passover. He's communicating who he is. And he is not saying that me and God the Father are on the same page. He's not saying me and God the Father, like we see eye to eye on things. What Jesus is saying is I and the Father are one. We are one in essence. We are one in nature. We see the triune God. God is one and reveals himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus is clearly and plainly plainly communicating he is God. And the reason, because it could be like, well, you know, people who wrestle with that, Jesus being God, they knew it in the story. They knew it. Like, look at the very next verse in verse 31. Look at what the Jews did. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why would they pick up stones to stone him? Because Leviticus 24 in the Old Testament, you stone those who blaspheme God. You stone those who would say that they are God or compare themselves to God. And so they know exactly what Jesus is saying. They understand Jesus is communicating that he is God. And so their stones are in hand and they are ready to strike him once again. But in verse 31, the Jews picked up the stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for your good work that you are, that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because being a man, you make yourself God. But they had it, they had it, they, they just need to flip it around because they've got it wrong that he was man making himself God. He is God and he has taken on flesh that we could never do on our own. We could never do it. In verse 34, Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law that I said you are gods? And if you called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. You say, what, what is he communicating? That you, you are God. He's quoting the Old Testament again. In Psalm 82, verse 6, the Bible says, I said you are God, Son of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any other prince. You see, in the Old Testament, you see the name Elohim for God. This is one of his... 
Hebrew names for God. The majority of times you look through the Old Testament, you will see him refer to himself as Elohim. God is Elohim. But there are just a handful of times, a couple times, where that word is used to describe rulers or judges who would sit in the seat of authority and represent God as it related to matters that they're ruling on. And so what Jesus is kind of clearing up the, the whatever confusion might be there. And essentially, if those who act unjustly on God's behalf were called sons of God, how is it not appropriate for me to call myself the son of God? He did such incredible works among them. And I love that he says, and the scripture cannot be broken. The word of God is such a gift. The word of God is such a blessing to our lives. Jesus had a high view of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, the authority of scripture. And may we, may we have a deep love for the word of God and the authority of God. Christ quoted the New Testament and the gospel somewhere around 64 times. Like he loved the word. He loved the Old Testament. It's his word. And so he's, 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 he's our example in all things, even in his love for the word. I love that. In verse 39, and they sought again to arrest him. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he's not running because he's scared. He's not running because like, oh no, what are they going to do to me? He's, he's pulling himself away because he is on a divine timetable. And no plan or scheme of man can change God's timetable. And so what has been set in eternity past is a perfect timing for God to come and to pay for the price for the sin of the world. And as his divine timetable, this isn't his time yet. The Bible told us as the good shepherd, he's the one who lays down his life for his sheep. He alone has the authority to lay down his life. He alone has the authority to raise it back up. This just isn't his timing in this moment. It's winter. He's going to go away, but he's going to come back in the springtime. He's going to come back as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so they sought for a fourth time now to seize him, to kill him, but they are not successful. So we see Christ is confronted by the unbelieving world. We see Christ confronts the unbelieving world with the truth of who he is. But then there's a third observation that, that I think is important for all of us to see is that ultimately every person has a responsibility to answer the most important question. And that is, do you believe or do you not believe? Do you believe or do you not believe? Christ exposes unbelief. And invites all people to believe in him. So let's look at verse 40 as we wrap up through verse 42. It says that he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him. But there will be those who reject. But there will be many who receive. Many who believe. John was the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who says, The one who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He is the one. John's testimony outlived him. I love that. 
Like I have a certain amount of time on this life, and when my time is done, I pray that my life would point people to Jesus. And that's exactly what John's testimony did. He was fine with just being a voice for the Lord. And so we see that many, many believed. And our world has changed a whole lot, even in my lifetime. And you've probably seen it change in your lifetime. And I'm thinking there's a lot of things that we're glad that have changed, right? Like air conditioning was a great change for our, uh, for, for our people, right? And uh, vehicles, like I'm thinking all y'all appreciated getting in a vehicle and like driving and not walking wherever you might be walking from, especially y'all, right? Live ways away, right? And so, so you live and we see so much and experience so much, but there are things that have not changed at all. And that is the spiritual condition of the world that we live in. Some believe and many, many reject and so it is very possible that in your circles and in your places you live, work, and play that you have had conversations with people with, that, that don't believe that Jesus is God. It could, you may describe them as very religious people. It could be that you have a conversation with an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who doesn't believe that anybody can, anybody can know God or that anything can be known of God. It could be that you'll speak to a humanist who does not believe that there is a God who commands us to have certain beliefs or to live our lives in a certain way and rewards or punishes us for what we have done or not done in this life. A humanist is one who needs no help because they can do it all on their own. It could be that you may have, have a conversation with an inclusivist. An inclusivist is one who says as long as you're sincere about what you believe, it's all going to work out. But we have probably in our lives at one point or another been sincerely wrong about something. And you cannot be sincerely wrong about who Christ is and what he has come to do. Could be that you meet an atheist, one who says there is no God. God opens those doors of conversations and opportunities to share. We have a great starting point, and that is that every single person operates in faith. Every single person. How can you have faith? Well, you live in faith every day. How many of you, again, I think I've asked this once. We'll do it one more time for fun. How many drove here today? All right. How many know how cars work? Y'all are my heroes. I'm just going to say that because I'm just glad I cranked my truck and my truck gets me here. I don't know how all the parts work, but I place my faith in it that it's going to get me here. And so we place our faith in things every day that we don't completely understand. But yet here's the encouragement for those in our conversations that have doubt or express doubt. They're seeking. And we can be faithful that God wants to use us to guide them in their seeking. And ultimately, again, in John 7, 17, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. As believers, we do not have blind faith. We have an informed faith. There are 66 books in this Bible written by 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years in different time zones and different points of history. And yet, and yet the entirety of Scripture points to one clear message, and that is that Jesus is the Christ. Fulfilled scripture on a, on a conservative basis, Christ fulfills 
300 Old Testament prophecies in himself, which you would say that's impossible. Exactly. That's the point. There's only one person who can pull it off and it's Christ. We see the words and we see the work of Christ. We see the empty tomb. We see the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. The Bible teaches us at one time as many as 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. And I, I, I've, I've shared this before, but if, if, if there's one person who says they see a unicorn in the parking lot right now, and they come in here and say, there's a unicorn out there, what are we going to do? We're going to say, hey, like, let's have a talk. <laughs> you come, come here and just sit down, like, let's, let's talk this out. But if 500 people run in from that parking lot and they say, there is a unicorn in the parking lot, what are we going to do? We're going to go see the unicorn. Because one person can hallucinate, but 500 people can't hallucinate and see the wrong thing. And so Christ is the resurrected Christ. And not only that, but my, one of my former pastors who I dearly love, deeply respect, he was an atheist for about uh, 19 uh, years of his life. And uh, he picked up a Bible in a hotel room one night and started reading it. And what what one thing God used as much as anything else to draw his heart to place his faith and trust in Christ is this, is that those disciples that followed him and gave their lives to follow him, they were ultimately martyred for their faith. Now, how many of you will lay down your life for what you know to be a lie? These disciples walked with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. They saw Christ on the cross. They saw the empty tomb. He was resurrected from the dead. And this is why I believe all disciples other than John were ultimately martyred for their faith. Why? Because they could not deny that Christ is the Messiah. They placed their faith and trust. And so as believers, be encouraged that God has lovingly equipped us with the truth of who he is to share his truth with a world that desperately needs him. And not only that, I would just say doubters are welcome. Your questions are welcome. That doubters, doubters are seeking truth. And when you ask questions and you genuinely seek the truth, God will use that in a mighty way ultimately to reveal himself and who he is. So it could be here and you are maybe one of those doubters and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ and you are, you are hearing the good shepherd's invitation and call and you know you desire to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I invite you and encourage you to do that today. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. And I also encourage anyone who said, I'm a doubter and I've got my questions. I would just say, we want to come alongside you and we want to walk alongside you as you seek truth and seek to know who Christ is. And then I know that I know that God will make himself known to you in a very real and tangible way. And so the question that I invite us all to answer is, have you believed? And if you've truly believed, it changes everything about our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, thank you for your gospel truth, this good news. And God, I, I am always amazed how even when your enemies encircle you to trap you, ultimately to try to kill you again, to stone you, 
that in those moments you plainly in grace and truth communicate who you are, that you are God, that you are God in the flesh, and that you are the Messiah, and that you have come to give freedom and forgiveness of our sin, to grant us peace with the living God, and to give us life and life to the full. Thank you, God for this gospel. And God, I pray as believers that we would not shy away from difficult conversations or doubters who have questions, but rather you have called us for this season and this time, God, with the truth of your word, God, to share truth, to point to the truth, to point to you and that you would do a mighty, mighty work, God. I pray that in our weakness, we realize just how strong you are and that you have placed us in these places where we live, work, and play to be a light for you. God, we pray for divine appointments. We pray for divine conversations. We pray, God, that you will empower us to be a bold witness for you, even if we feel we are not the best at it. And God, I pray that there's anybody who is doubting God, that you would make yourself known in an unmistakable way. And that today would be the day of salvation. God, we love you. We praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing to the Lord. Just invite you to respond how you feel led. Why pastors here would love to pray for you. Altars always open for, for prayer, whatever might be on your heart. But let's just spend this time, be sensitive to what God wants to do in our hearts and our lives this morning.